point, uh, uh, preschool uh, and elementary school kids are dismissed. Preschool can go out this door here, and elementary school kids can go out the door to my left. And then uh, give me a few minutes, and then we'll start the message. All right. Well, good morning again. All right. So our message this morning is not really, um, it's not really an introduction to Proverbs. In fact, Ruth is going to do that next week. Uh, rather, I've been thinking about this message as more of a forward to this series through the book of Proverbs. And it's attempt, at least, uh, uh, well, you can tell me if this works. It's an attempt to set the context a little bit. Uh, specifically, I want to spend some time thinking about the difference between uh, wisdom and knowledge in the Hebrew Bible. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, what we commonly call uh, the Old Testament, uh, wisdom and knowledge are two distinct ways of understanding the world and our role in it. Now, viewed through the lens of knowledge, the world appears to be this vast and open place to be explored, to be understood, even to be mastered. Knowledge seeks to tame the world, to develop a comprehensive understanding of how it works. And there's many reasons why people pursue knowledge. Sometimes these reasons are more self-centered, to improve the quality of one's life, to access a career field, uh, to increase one's earning potential, to avoid painful and costly mistakes. There's all kinds of reasons and motives that people have for pursuing knowledge. They're driven by all kinds of motives. And even these self-serving ones are not necessarily bad. But then there's times that people are driven by more altruistic motives. They simply desire to contribute to the flourishing of others. Sometimes people simply want to know more so that they can do more good in the world. And I can think about all kinds of professions where this is true. And hopefully this is the kind of community that we're becoming here at Cedar Ridge, a community that's learning, but not just for the sake of knowledge and information, but so that we can do more good in the world. You see, the reality is knowledge is powerful and it can be used in some profound ways to make a positive difference in the world. Now, at some point, though, All of us must face the fact that there are limitations to how much knowledge we can gain, right? You can only read so many books. You can only listen to so many lectures and podcasts. You can only consume so much content. There's only so many hours in a day and you got to sleep. And although human knowledge is growing at a rapid speed, there will always There will always be more to learn. There will always be more to know. No matter how much we know, there will always be something we don't understand. And there will always be this kind of mystery to life, this unknown parts of our world. 
Now, wisdom, on the other hand, is an older, higher, more holistic form of understanding. Now, according to the Hebrew Bible, wisdom doesn't emerge from the earth. It doesn't come from the human sphere. Rather, wisdom comes from above. Wisdom comes from God. In fact, you can think about some popular scriptures and listen to how they describe the completeness or the fullness of God's understanding of the world. Think about Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Or Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, wisdom, this higher, this older, this more holistic form of understanding, it comes from God. It eternally exists as an attribute of God. God didn't gain wisdom. The Bible's teaching us that God is wise. And I think it's important for us to resist the tendency to intellectualize wisdom and treat it as a synonym for common sense or street smarts or intelligence. Wisdom, true wisdom, according to the Hebrew Bible, is divine, it's godly. It's something altogether different than knowledge. And it can't be reduced to reason or logic. And it can't be deduced from information and data But you know what? This hasn't stopped us from trying to arrive at a holistic, a godlike understanding of the world. But it's a fool's errand. We can only gain so much knowledge. But wisdom, true wisdom, is divine according to the Bible. And as such, we can only, it can only be received from God. Now, in the opening pages of the Hebrew Bible, we see that humans have often failed to recognize the difference, or at least this difference between knowledge and wisdom. In fact, in many ways, humans have attempted to close the gap between a human understanding of the world and a more godlike understanding of the world. And at times we have failed to see that God is not just full of knowledge, but that God is wise. And this morning, we're going to spend most of our time In the book of Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible, because I believe the way this book opens will help us understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Now, the book of Genesis, or at least the word Genesis, literally means beginning. And that's just how the book opens in the beginning of the world, with the creation of the world. Look with me at Genesis uh, 1, verse 1, the first verse in, in our Bibles. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now by opening with these words, the Hebrew Bible's teaching that a higher power was involved in the creation of the world. More specifically, that God is the creator of 
everything. Now, the theological term that's often used to describe this is ex nihilo. It literally means out of nothing. That is, everything that exists proceeded from the very being of God. Now, in these opening lines of Genesis, we see the ancient Hebrew people reaching for language to describe the creation of the world. And this chapter is deeply theological. It's poetic. It's full of metaphors. It's a beautiful piece of literature. But more than that, it's a human attempt to express an incomprehensible concept with words that humans can comprehend. Feels like an impossible task. In the beginning, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so it goes on and on for six days with God speaking the world into existence. It's an imaginative way of saying that the world and all that exists came out of the mind of God. Or one might say the world and all that exists came out of the wisdom of God. Now, over the years, the ways people that have spoken about the creation of the world has changed. Humans have reached for language and concepts to try to describe it and explain it. Even in this room, I'm sure there's probably different ideas about how the world was created. However, the author of Genesis isn't really concerned with how the world was created. Rather, the scriptures are inviting us to imagine the God who set it all in motion. What must that God, the God who set the creation of the world in motion, what must that God be like? I think Genesis is trying to get us to think deeply about that. And here at the very beginning, the Hebrew Bible is drawing this distinction between God and humans, right? God is the one who created the world out of nothing and understands how it works. God has complete and perfect knowledge of the systems of the universe. God is full of wisdom, that older, higher, more holistic form of understanding and this wisdom is not something God gained. God is wise. God is eternally proud of God's wisdom. In fact, look at Proverbs 3, verse 19, and the way it says, it says, by wisdom, the Lord laid the foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his watery depths were divided and us let drop the dew. God is wise. By his wisdom, he created. Now, humans, on the other hand, whether we like it or not, the shortcomings of our understanding. We are constantly reminded of how little we actually know and how much mystery remains. Even with all that we've learned and accomplished the world still, still appears to be a vast and open place to be explored, to be understood, even sometimes to be mastered because our knowledge is incomplete. And that's the way knowledge views the world. 
Now, as we progress into the book of Genesis and get into chapter two, we see the first human attempt to close the gap between human knowledge and God's understanding of the world. In the second chapter of Genesis, there's a second creation story that's told from a different perspective. Uh, listen to how it, how it starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, this creation story is quite different than the one in Genesis chapter 1. In this creation story, it imagines the world as the work of God's hands, whereas in Genesis 1, God is speaking things into existence. In this story, God forms man, God plants a garden, God forms, kind of as a potter forms clay, the wild animals and the birds of the sky. And it's also in this story that we see the first surgical procedure where God removes one of Adam's ribs, if you remember this story, and he uses that to form woman as a companion with Adam. In in this creation story, God is putting his own hands to work. He's making, he's shaping, he's forming creation. In this story, just like the one in Genesis chapter one, it's deeply theological, it's full of metaphors. Man, and when I read the story, it feels like it's trying to teach us something much deeper than how the world came into being. Now, if you've read this story before, you probably remember that uh, God plants a garden, and God calls that garden Eden. And in the middle of Eden, God calls us two trees to grow. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that these trees were good and pleasing, good, um, were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And then God takes Adam and Eve, and the Bible says he places them in the garden with specific instructions. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives them permission to eat as much as they want from all the trees, but then makes this one tree off limits. Now, and every time I read this story, like I kind of feel like this is a setup, right? Uh, And people have been hard on Adam and Eve, but if I were in the garden, I, I don't know that I would have been able to resist the fruit Either I can't even resist a pint of Ben and Jerry's in my freezer. Uh, if it's in my house, I'm going to eat it. I have zero discipline whatsoever. And you judge me all you want. I don't. The only method I've found for for avoiding it 
is not to buy it in the first place. If it doesn't come to my house, I don't eat it. If it comes to my house, I'm eating it. But God puts Adam and Eve right here in the middle of this garden with this fruit tree that is pleasing to the eye and tells them not to eat from it. And every morning they got to wake up and they got to look at that tree uh, and they have to resist. I mean, there's just no way. Now, maybe you have more willpower than I do, but I don't think I could have done it. But that's not really, if you read the story carefully, that's not really what tripped them up. Look at how this story describes the moment they gave in to temptation in Genesis chapter 3. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only is this fruit good, but it's also going to make you smart. Like I read the story, I'm like, man, why can't cheesecake do that? Um, I'm just saying. I'm always thinking about food. This is a problem. Um, but, but notice this phrase that's used here in, in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You'll be like God, knowing, knowing good and evil. What Satan does here is convince Adam and Eve that the reason God doesn't want them to eat from the tree is because it will give them God-like knowledge of the world. And they're deluded into thinking that the fruit from the tree will give them knowledge that they do not have and that that knowledge somehow is going to close the gap between a human understanding and a God-like complete holistic understanding of the world. And what we see here in the second creation story is that humans have an insatiable appetite for knowledge, for information, for understanding. And when we fail to recognize our place in the world, we will inevitably attempt to make ourselves gods rather than submitting ourselves to God. Now, I came across an article this week that addressed this um, this very subject, and it was written by some experts in their field. And it's probably not the kind of experts you're thinking about, um, because I found it on uh, sleep.com, and it's written by the self-proclaimed uh, uh, experts of sleep, the sleep experts at Mattress Firm. And in this article, sleep expert Ann Derman writes this, if you want to stop doom scrolling, that's like scrolling to your phone at night like for no purpose. If you want to stop doom scrolling, the obvious first step is to put your phone away, ideally in another room. Now, that's a good that's a good New Year's resolution, I think, for a lot of us in this room. I'm just saying that's not the point. But, hey, that's a good New Year's resolution. I might make that a New Year's resolution, although I'm always worried somebody may call me. 
Um, but it can be, all right, let me focus. But it can be surprisingly hard to untether from the endless fountain of information that is the internet. That's because grasping for knowledge is one way for humans to try to make sense of a world that otherwise feels scary. Grasping for knowledge, right? That's nothing new. Now, well, maybe doom scrolling is new, but since the beginning of time, humans have been grasping for knowledge. It's not just our generation. It's just that our generation has more access. We have it at our fingertips. And so we grasp for for knowledge. Now, before I close, I think it's important for me to acknowledge that the Bible is not anti-education, right? The Bible is not anti-knowledge. It's not somehow anti-information. In fact, it holds up a willingness to learn as a virtuous and God-honoring way to live. There are even verses in Proverbs, like Proverbs 18, verse 15, that says, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge for the ears of the wise seek it out. And then there's Proverbs 12, verse 1, that says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid, right? In other words, if we're not open to learning from life, from life experiences, from mistakes, from shortcomings, from the experiences of others, if we're not willing to learn or open to learn from the world around us, then the Bible says we're not very, we're not very smart. Um, you see, scriptures uphold a willingness to learn, to grow in knowledge as a righteous way to live is how we're intended to navigate life as humans. In fact, each generation ought to know more because the knowledge of the generate knowledge gained in the prior generation is being passed down and knowledge works like that. We kind of build upon it. And this is what we've seen throughout History is the body of human knowledge continues to grow, which has led to all kinds of medical and technological advancements that I'm thankful for. They've improved the quality of our life. And some of this knowledge has helped us be better stewards uh, of the earth to care for the world and the environment around us. And I think that's a good thing. You see, knowledge is important, even necessary for life. It's good for humans to want to learn more, know more, understand more. But knowledge is also deceptively powerful. So much so that Adam and Eve believed that more knowledge would make them like God. You know, it's hard to receive from God when our desire is to be God. And the Hebrew Bible wants us to see that the difference between God and humans is not merely a gap in understanding that can somehow be closed. There's not a knowledge gap between us and God that can somehow be closed, making us like God. And that's not, and, and there's not a point uh, anytime in the future, no matter how much knowledge we gain, that humans will become God's equals. That just isn't possible. Knowledge can't do that. 
Rather, the scriptures are calling us to a posture of humility and openness to receive wisdom from God. Particularly as we engage with books like the book of Proverbs and scripture in general, this posture of openness and wisdom. Like as we wake up every day and as we go out into the world, this posture of openness and humility to receive wisdom from God. It's only as we take this posture that we can truly enter into the flow of God's wisdom that permeates every aspect of creation. You know, there's a proverb that I like to read from time to time because it reminds me of this. Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Hmm. Reminds me of the shortcoming of human knowledge and understanding. Now, this proverb isn't about denigrating humans or adopting some low view of humanity and our potential, but it's having a high view of God. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs is premised on this understanding of God, this high view of God, this God who has, is full of wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And we are to receive from God. Now, these next two Proverbs that I'm going to read to close, we're going to explore more in this series, Ancient Life Hacks. But that's why it's, Proverbs says this, though, in these verses. It says, the fear of the Lord, or this kind of awe of who God is, this recognizing our place in relation to God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, the Bible is calling us to adopt this posture of humility and openness to receive from God every day. And it's only as we accept our position as created beings that we can posture ourselves to receive wisdom from God. You know, this morning, like every Sunday morning, we um, share in a time of uh, reflection and response to um, the scriptures that we've read and the message that we've heard. And, um, You know, I always like to say, sometimes it's a time to just sit and do nothing. Don't feel pressured um, to respond through action, right? Sometimes in life, we feel pressured to act. But sometimes we can sit with a posture of openness and humility and receive from God. During this time, some people like to make their way to one of the three tables around the room. There's two on either side and there's one in the center and you can make your way to that table and you can share in a time of communion with one another as a way of reflecting on the life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus and the triumph of love over death and evil and darkness. There's also candles in the back of the room right in the center 
There's candles where you can spend time in prayer and reflection, maybe praying for a loved one or praying for 2024 um, and what your hopes, dreams, maybe resolutions are in the new year. There's a station where you can spend time in lament, praying over the brokenness of this world and lamenting the pain and death um, that surround us, but also that we read about in faraway places. And however it is that you're led to respond in this moment, um, it's just a space for you to sit and reflect and welcome God to act in your life. The band is going to sing, and as you feel comfortable or led, feel free to respond however God is leading you.